Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And today is October 19th, 2016. This is episode three, Relative Rightness, Ethics in Emergency Management. In this episode, we discuss the ethical dimension of disasters and how emergency managers can identify disaster dilemmas and try and make the right call. We'll also be speaking to Catherine Duthie, a clinical ethicist from the Royal Alex Hospital in Edmonton. We'll also have our first journal club and share some practical tools of the trade. All this and more on episode three of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. So Grayson, what comes to mind when I say the term disaster ethics? Well, I think of situations of injustice, Mm -hmm. um, difficult situations such as triaging patients or equipment or resources as we go and uh, addressing difficult situations like people's low uh, socioeconomic status, people who have maybe lost everything and uh, need things that we aren't able to easily provide. Yeah, managing vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the, the triage part you mentioned, medical ethics, I think is where my mind goes to uh, right away when I think of kind of ethical dilemmas in, in emergency management. Uh, but I think it's important to, to realize it's much more than just the medical ethics. Uh, there's all sorts of things that come into play, business ethics, uh, truth telling, how we uh, basically deal with, with any major decision uh, in a disaster setting. Chances are there's there's some ethical dimension to it. Uh, so I think, you know, we'll try and explore that a little bit in this episode. Uh, one concept uh, uh, from a, a prof at York University whose uh, presentation I was able to, to review uh, it goes, it's Etkin, um, and he talks about this concept of ethical maturity of emergency managers, and are emergency managers really up to the task, so to speak, for making these big decisions, and how much of our training uh, involves ethics and ethical decision-making. Um, he reviewed a few of the big uh, high-impact journals in emergency management and found that only 0.08% of them even mention ethics, and things like morality and stuff don't seem to come up too much in, in any of the big textbooks either, so we might have some learning to do. All right, well, let's take a listen to this interview. My name is Catherine Duffy. My title is clinical ethicist. I cover the North Zone of Alberta, as well as Royal Alexander Hospital here in Edmonton. And my role is to assist healthcare teams, patients, families, volunteers, when there's uncertainty or disagreement about how to move forward, usually in a clinical scenario. Awesome. And what, in large terms, is clinical ethics, just as a field, for those who might not know? Um, I, I almost feel like we'd have to go back to what ethics is to, to kind of give a good answer to that question. Um, um, really, it's the inquiry about what the good or right thing to do is. And in healthcare, um, how healthcare professions are set up is that they're guided through codes of ethics, and there are certain duties and obligations that healthcare providers have. So, within clinical ethics, one of our ways, our roles is to try and enable healthcare providers to understand what that means in a particular scenario, especially if it's a case where there's a true dilemma, where it feels like there's two really important things you want to be able to accomplish and you can't do both. Right. So that's how it fits with the healthcare context. Excellent. And in terms of disasters, um, what, what are some of the classic uh, ethical dilemmas that seem to crop up in disasters? Mm-hmm. Um, well, in that case, we sometimes talk about uh, healthcare providers' duty to care and, and forcing people to come to work in circumstances where they might be putting their own well-being in jeopardy or maybe leaving family members at home in less than safe situations. 
We often talk about allocating resources, so if there's a surge in need for whatever it might be, ventilators, even just time with a clinician, um, how to allocate that, um, what our goals should be, should we be treating people the same way we would in day-to-day -day healthcare, or really whether it's about minimizing the overall impact of that disaster by getting the most numbers of people healthy, or at least addressing their immediate healthcare needs. So those are the types of questions that come up. Awesome. in ethics on that topic. I know uh, in terms of Canadian examples, uh, some of the disasters that have happened in Canada, there's been questions about allocation of things like ventilators and a SARS pandemic and um, other influenza pandemics and things. Mm -hmm. How do you approach a problem like that? It seems like uh, ethically troubled waters. It is, yeah, and there's lots of different ways to think about it. Um, the processes that I've been involved to practically actually try and come up with a plan, um, I mean, I don't know if this is a question you're asking, but usually it involves just getting the people in the room who tend to make decisions like that to decide, uh, usually we're trying to figure out criteria, right, so that in the moment when a provider is facing a room full of patients, that there's some tool or, or you know, set of, requirements they can look at to make a decision about who should treat. So um, procedurally, it is really just trying to bring forward some good thinking with that group to say, okay, what should be the most important thing here? Um, and if that's the most important thing, whether it's to save younger people, whether it's to um, treat people who can easily benefit from the treatment, whether it's treat the sickest, to then create that plan based, based on that assumption or beliefs about what really matters. One of the challenges, of course, though, is trying to make sure that we have all the right perspectives in the room, right? If we're all healthcare administrators, that's a fair, usually a narrow slice of society. Those people have particular levels of education, tend to be within a particular socioeconomic class. So when you're making these big decisions about, say, allocating access to healthcare, uh, with only those perspectives in mind, you're missing out on the bigger population, which would include people from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities, um, religious backgrounds, physiological well-being, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So it's a challenge for sure to get the, get those frameworks developed. But they have been developed and they're around. Yeah, it seems, I mean, most emergency planners are familiar with concepts of mass casualty triage. We use things like the START triage system. And it seems very utilitarian mm -hmm. in terms of just maximizing the most good for the most people. Um, beyond the utilitarian perspective, what other weight lenses do you mm -hmm. use to look at that problem? Well, um, without getting too technical, we might think about, um, I'll, I'll get technical, the deontological approach as well, which you're familiar with, right? So we might think that there's some principles that we still need to be living up to, uh, where we, it's not simply about the outcomes of our decisions, actually uh, the content of our decision matters as well. And so normally we're using a combination of those things, right? So we might say, yeah, we want to make sure that we um, create a maximum amount of good, or in more concrete terms, save the maximum number of lives, something like that, there's still going to be limits to how we can achieve that. So we might find that it would be um, acceptable to um, uh, prioritize a child over an elderly person, but we would still try and make sure that that elderly person is warm and, and has fundamental needs met. We would, that doesn't necessarily mean that we would um, take very dra drastic steps right. to try and achieve the outcome that we're looking for, right? So, and, and fundamentally treating each other with dignity and, and respectfully no matter what would be a principle we'd want to live up to, even if we're trying to achieve more utilitarian goals of enabling to like minimize the impact of the disaster, if you think about it that way. Right. 
and uh, deontologism. Deonta. <laughs> thank you. Deontology. That's better. Our, what's it, uh, Mr. Kant? That's it, or? Um, yeah, that's uh, Immanuel Kant is probably the philosopher who's most um, closely associated with that in moral philosophy, and and his. Um, his view on morality and ethics, which I will—I use those words interchangeably, not everybody does, was that um, there are just certain principles that we have to live by and, and rules so that it, it's not about how much good you create in the world, it's about the intention of your action um, and that there are certain fundamental moral rules that you can't um, um, overstep. So he was very much about um, you weren't uh, you ought not ever to lie, for example. So one of his famous, famous in philosophy terms, <laughs> um, examples is the inquiring murderer. Okay. So if somebody, if a, if a murderer comes to your door um, uh, and you're at home with your friend and says, um, is, you know, is, is Josh here? Yeah. Um, I have a bone to pick with him. Um, uh, Khan would say that you should always you ought always to tell the truth. So your obligation would, to truth would be to say, yes, Josh is just in the other room. Don't um, know if I like that. <laughs> right, which seems to contravene some moral intuitions, which would say in that circumstance, it would be permissible to lie because the outcome is that you would have a better chance of protecting Josh's life. Right. You know, so uh, that deontology is, you know, it's principle-based, right? We should always respect people's um, rights to autonomy. We should always, we should never lie. We should always, you know, things like that irrespective of the outcomes that they create. Uh, even if they create harm, it doesn't matter. The rightness of the action is determined by whether or not it aligns with these core principles, not with the outcomes. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess the challenges in, in disasters is mm -hmm. when you have these sort of conflicting situations, whether it be resource allocation or whatever, in the heat of the moment when the floodwaters are rising or the wildfires are burning, mm -hmm. how do you how do you tackle a problem like that? It seems a bit overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it absolutely is overwhelming. And one of the things that um, the, the preparation in creating these frameworks is intended to address or, um, I don't know, prevent is the uh, immediate decision making that someone who in a very overwhelming situation just kind of acting on instinct or, you know, we might call it type one thinking, yes. which is something that we, you and I have talked about, yeah. um, may make a decision that, in fact, when you look at it, didn't achieve things that, you know, wasn't well justified under any way of assessing that, right? So it didn't achieve um, good, the greatest good for the greatest number, nor did it particularly live up to ethical principles, right? Mm -hmm. So we all have our moral intuitions. Um, and if somebody is acting on a moral intuition, which is an if, that intuition might not actually be appropriate uh, on reflection, which isn't to say we would blame somebody for just making a snap decision, but the thinking is that if we could prepare ahead of time, then we're not putting healthcare providers, you know, paramedics, disaster, first responders, whomever, in a position of feeling like they have to make those really heavy decisions right. with no support whatsoever. That if you can, you know, give them something to say, okay, here's our priority, then at least they can make those decisions in a more informed way, and in a way that maybe doesn't sit so heavily on their shoulders too, which I think mm. is important. Interesting. And and going back to the pandemic example, um, there's I guess different lenses. I mean, there's the actual allocation of, of resources of one part of it. Mm -hmm. I know one of the uh, concerns, uh, in, for example, in, with SARS in Toronto was. 
uh, the obligation of healthcare workers to actually come to work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the average nurse signed up to, to work on a unit in a safe environment and then now you're, you're telling them that there's this potentially life-threatening disease with no cure and other nurses are getting sick from it. Um, how do you square that from a professional standpoint? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think at that point, one of the, the realities is that it's a, there's a professional standpoint and there's a personal standpoint right. that are intersecting, right? And you've in part uh, made a good point that it, it creates a, a circumstance that the professional person hasn't kind of signed up for in a sense. Although potentially you might say to any healthcare provider, it, there will could be a time in the future when you're involved in a disaster or a, a pandemic type disaster yeah. or whatever it might be. Um, so, and I think the tension arises when people feel the duties in their own personal lives. So if you imagine people are parents or looking after elder, um, their children, elderly loved ones, or whatever that may be, they're feeling that tension between their obligations to that versus their professional obligations to their patients and their colleagues. And so uh, the first thing I think is to recognize that there is that tension, right? We can't simply say, well, it's your professional duty. What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it actually, you need to recognize the bigger picture and think, okay, how can we, how can we support our professionals to come in and, and follow through on what we think is an important part of their professional obligation um, so that they're not put in that awkward or awkward's not even the right word, very brutally difficult yeah. dilemma of deciding between their patients and client, you know, clients, colleagues, and their families, right? Mm -hmm. So can we um, make sure that we have maximal safety precautions so that mm -hmm. um, it's not uh, all things that could be done to prevent them getting sick Harm, yeah. um, is done? Can we provide support so that there are people who can look after their children so that, you know what I mean, right? Like that yeah. might not actually go far enough for some people, especially yeah. if they feel like their life is in danger. Or they could be bringing home a communicable disease to yeah. their family. Yeah, and that was the concern with Ebola was, yeah. you know, nurses and, and physicians insisting on going to a hotel instead of going home because they, right, exactly. they fear bringing something back with them. And, and so, and that's a very, again, we have to be really... Uh, I think recognize that that's entirely appropriate for people, human beings, to be worried about that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, uh, you're a physician, but you're not only a physician, right? And so, um, you know, could we then pay for that hotel for two weeks and get food delivered, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the, the principle of reciprocity comes up where we're trying to um, enable people to follow through on what we may think of their professional obligations or just their obligations as a human being, we might think of. Um, by by taking away some of the cost of that, right, the personal and professional cost of that. And how good do you think people are at, uh, if I were to ask a, a nurse, for example, you know, um, let's say the next novel disease crops up, how likely you are to come to work? Are people good at, at forecasting their future decisions, or is that something that's difficult until you're actually in the moment? Uh, balancing that because from a planning perspective I mean I think you would want mm -hmm. to know that uh, it'd be nice to know that only you know the 60% of my nursing staff are going to show up during a disaster mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. what have you um, it doesn't necessarily even have to be healthcare I guess mm -hmm. it could be any planning but are people generally good at weighing those ethical dilemmas ahead of time if you pose the question or um, that's a great question I mean in part I would want to know what they've learned from SARS if they I don't know if those sort of pre and post questions were asked but yeah. I'd be in some ways, that's an empirical question. Mm -hmm. um, I th from my experience in other types of scenarios where people anticipate what their reactions will be, and then where you see people who have been through them, I have seen a difference, right? Mm -hmm. Where 
because like in all of us in this planning, um, obviously people try and learn from other disasters uh, and take that knowledge into consideration, but inevitably we're, we're making assumptions, we're making stuff up, right? We're kind of creating a picture. What will this be like? Okay, how do we prepare for that? And inevitably, we're get, some of that picture is not going to be accurate. And I think that's true for um, individuals trying to anticipate what their behavior will be. So I don't know what the answer is, if, you know, if, if people are that great at it. But I can can imagine that some that you would see some flipping, right? Some people saying, "Oh yeah, I'd be there 100%," and mm -hmm. then realizing the reality of it, changing their mind, and others yeah. feeling like they would be really cautious or concerned. But then in the moment, saying, "You know what? Recognizing that they feel really strongly pulled to go and be there." So right. I'm not really answering yeah. the question. No, I think, but right, I, yeah, your perceived best self versus yeah. reality. Yeah, it's a or challenge. even if, I mean, and maybe that's a personality thing. Maybe some people are uh, overestimate, you know, their nobility, and maybe <laughs> other people underestimate it. Um, but in my general experience in health ethics and clinical life is that the visceral experience matters yeah. immensely, and and you know, both to uh, our ability to be compassionate with one another and. And also, in being able to understand our patients, right? Just yeah. kind of the same thing. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you very much for the interview. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. So that was a good conversation I had uh, with Catherine about uh, ethics and how to approach ethical decision making. Uh, did you ever receive much training in that in your uh, EM uh, training? I can't say that it was a main focus. I think there was a, a segment or two, and it's of, often brought up in the aftermath. But in the moment, ethical decision making. I don't think is really covered as much as yeah, it should be. I, I'm sure there was probably a PowerPoint at some point which yeah. I was exposed to, but I agree. I didn't I didn't get a huge amount either. Um, and it's always easy to armchair quarterback as we know and, and that's uh, you know, disasters are, are disasters for a reason. But I think there's some important points that come up about at least having a framework to approach ethical problems. Uh, some of us may be familiar with the IAEM, the International Association of Emergency Managers. They've come up with a code of ethics. I don't know if it's really grounded in any of those ethical principles uh, per se that we uh, discussed, uh, beneficence and, and things like that, but at least it's a starting point. Absolutely. I think that's actually common in a lot of ethical frameworks is that they're more value statements um, mm -hmm. and they're based on more business model type things than the actual ethical theory mm -hmm. behind it. But. And the presentation, which is in the show notes from York University, talks about uh, you know disaster complexity and, and how ethical decision making maybe changes based on the complexity of a disaster, uh, which by the way, I think maybe a future podcast episode on mm -hmm. its own is complexity theory. But anyways, uh, this idea that you know some decisions are clear cut and if it's a predictable disaster and society's getting back to normal soon, then maybe those decisions aren't as difficult. It's hard, uh, obviously, when really complex disasters um, you know, the concept of relative rightness, uh, classic things, you know, about is it, is it right to steal bread to feed your family? Mm. Under what conditions do our, does our uh, kind of moral compass uh, get swayed? Uh, the other uh, issue is uh, the so-called social contract that we have. Um, you know, as emergency managers, we're in a position to make big decisions. And we're sometimes, uh, we forget, I think, the as much as I personally like to poke fun at bureaucracy and inefficiency in government, that there is a certain amount of protection that's afforded to, uh, you know, going through four layers of committee or having eight people have to sign off on, you know, funding decisions and things like that. And that normal bureaucracy that in some cases, uh, at least insulates and, and through time kind of protects us from making impulsive uh, or maybe not totally thought out decisions is generally lacking in a disaster, right? That's the ultimate scarcity is, is time. 
that sort of uh, ethical system of checks and balances just isn't in place. And it seems like a lot of disaster managers have a, a mind frame of this utilitarian yeah. uh, approach. Um, Absolutely. And the, uh, you know, the research tends to suggest anyways that we, we might overcall it sometimes when we, we think that there's a, a scarcity. Um, when we review our, our paper in a few minutes here, it talks about uh, the idea of relative scarcity versus absolute scarcity. And uh, historically, in North America, we're so well resourced, there's, there's few examples of times when there's really a true scarcity and sometimes perceived scarcity can force us into that utilitarian Especially thinking. when we're talking about the medical realm. Yeah, and it's helpful to look at some examples. So uh, what comes to mind for me uh, locally is the Pine Lake tornado, which happened around 2000 in Alberta. And a tornado hit a trailer park uh, just uh, near Red Deer, which is kind of halfway between Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, The initial reports were that there was a mass casualty incident and our regional trauma center activated their code orange plan and patients were uh, sent home from the emergency department in anticipation of sicker patients that would be coming in that would be very resource intensive. And turns out those patients never came. And, um, you know, I think that's a bit of an example of how we, it's the initial reports sometimes are worse. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that's not a critique on responder actions because no. that is currently the accepted model is you ramp it up as high as it can go and then you tailor back as things come in. But the unexpected cost of that, like you said, sending patients home who maybe needed to stay in the, the hospital for these non-existent um, Patients, yeah. And, you know, the utilitarian model is huge in start triage, which Mm -hmm. is what most EMS responders are trained in, simple triage and rapid transport. And uh, essentially, that's uh, if you're triaged as black, that's a a socially mandated DNR that you've uh, been given. That's right. That's a very ethically heavy decision made by quite often someone with minimal medical skills, let alone uh, ethical training. Yeah, yeah, a junior responder often or a first responder. So I think it just uh, highlights the point that, you know, um, ethical decisions and dilemmas do exist. So when you're working in an EOC or a incident command post, uh, having that um, thought about what are the ethical uh, implications of our decisions. Uh, in High River, um, another recent example, uh, there's you know unintended consequences sometimes, and and uh, issues like property rights and um, you know decisions to remove firearms from people's homes were made out of I think very uh, well-intentioned public safety um, rationale, but were were perceived by the public as you know an assault on on their rights, and uh, you know there is all sorts of uh, uh, complaints and, and um, you know, it's criticized heavily in some of the after action reports. I really like that example because it's, uh, it's a good example of how one ethical model doesn't fit in the aftermath. So at the time, it's a utilitarian model, it's like, okay, we have a public danger that we have to address. So this mm-hmm. is during, during the floods, RCMP uh, did some entry into houses to make sure people were evacuated, found unsecured firearms, and had to make this decision whether or not to um, remove them. And at the time, as a public safety, maximum benefit, utilitarian uh, model of decision making. In the aftermath, boils down to a bit more of an individual rights issue, boils down mm-hmm. to virtue or uh, some other ethical models um, that apply in the aftermath, but not in the during, really. Yeah. So I think uh, next, uh, why don't we talk about our, our journal club? Um, so, Josh, what is Journal Club? <laughs> oh, okay. What that's, is this new element to our podcast? That's a good question, Grayson. So, Journal Club is essentially a, a group that meets to discuss new literature or review so-called landmark papers. Uh, so, we thought we would incorporate this into our episodes and 
each episode try and bring up at least one or two papers that we thought were uh, worth a read and we'll uh, give you the synopsis if you don't have time to read them. So for this one, uh, this is a paper uh, and I'm going to butcher this name. It's Sands Kriker. There's uh, some Z's and J's and K's in the name, but Matthew Sands Kriker uh, um, and colleagues uh, uh, Madsen and Alandro. Paper's called Unstable Ethical Plateaus and Disaster Triage, yeah, 2006 from the Emergency Medicine Clinics North America Journal. I think this is probably one of the most definitive papers that I've ever seen that really truly critiques medical triage decisions and specifically disaster triage, MCI triage, and it challenges some of our assumptions. Absolutely. The very first uh, assumption that I was challenged on was even my understanding of utilitarianism. Mm. Uh, I always thought of it as the most good for the most number of people. It's actually just maintaining the most amount of happiness overall. Uh, It doesn't mean for the most people. It, It actually just means in general. Um, which is very difficult to to measure yeah. in in disaster circumstances. So Absolutely. maybe it's not the greatest model for disasters, as uh, as he argues later in the paper. And it's not the, even the only model that's used in the world. Uh, you look at some regions, uh, such as Israel, that have frequent uh, mass casualty events and bombings and things like that, they've opted to not take a utilitarian approach. They actually give very aggressive interventions, high resource interventions in the field routinely. Um, For the medical folks in the room, uh, they do things like pre-hospital intubations, uh, needle decompressions, and even ED thoracotomies routinely with their sickest patients in in triage. And that's counter to what we're kind of taught um, in the sense that these really high resource uh, uh, interventions shouldn't maybe be done quite so readily. I wonder if that's a, a lesson learned about perceived scarcity mm-hmm. where you think that you don't have the resources where maybe you do, maybe yeah. you do have the time. Uh, one of the other issues I like that's raised in the paper is, you know, they look at triage from different ethical perspectives, um, but they also call for public consultation and saying that, you know, do we necessarily have the social license to be making these uh, big decisions without the larger support of the community and and might we think about doing consultations ahead of time with a town or a city saying hey if something really bad happens here um, are you okay with us making these decisions you know if you meet these criteria criteria we're not going to treat you and if you meet these criteria you will um, when you think about ventilator management and allocation uh, you know those are questions I think that are worth a discussion beforehand because it's certainly very hard to have them in the heat of the moment and I wonder if that would help, uh, because as we discussed, some ethical models fit at the moment, they fit afterwards, mm-hmm. uh, and they can clash when they come together. Do you think people can make this decision beforehand, can put themselves in, yeah, it's in hard. the right mind frame? Yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's you know, our perceived best self versus our, our real self. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the, uh, the lines at the end of the paper is the author uh, quote, uh, uh, Doms, who says, um, disaster triage is ethical only under extreme situations where unexpected victims could not be foreseen. So it's therefore unethical not to plan, which is interesting. So uh, the ethical uh, implications of, of taking the time to have a pre-plan. Um, all right, well, moving on to our next section here, we're going to go into our tools of the trade, where we try and bring you relevant and real-world uh, resources and, and, and tools that are helpful for emergency manager. This episode, we wanted to talk about uh, <clears throat> a tool developed by Texas Instruments, which is called the TI Ethics Quick Test, which comes up a lot in the business, eth- 
business ethics uh, literature. So useful maybe for business continuity planners and things as well. But essentially they take all of this academic ethics discussion and on something that could fit on a business card, they've got a little uh, snippet of a few questions that can kind of get the ethical part of your brain going. Uh, to go through the questions here, it says, question number one, is the action or the proposed action legal? Does it comply with our core values? If you do it, will you feel bad? How will it look in the newspaper? If you know it's wrong, don't do it. If you're not sure, ask, and then keep asking until you get an answer. So going through the process of identifying all the values that are at stake and then uh, using some of these classic ethical tests locally, I think we call it the Calgary Herald test. So how would you like it if what you did was on the front page of the Calgary Herald tomorrow? Would you, uh, would you be okay with it? Um, asking you asking those questions, I think can be useful, um, you know, in the heat of the moment. And it sounds like it's a good way to keep these issues in the forefront of your mind while you're making the decisions. I'm sure any ethicist looking at this would take issue with some of the, <laughs> the theory behind it, but it boils down to getting it into the forefront of your mind, exactly. not necessarily a full understanding of the the eight years that somebody spent <laughs> learning about yeah. complexity. Yeah. So uh, I'd encourage you to look at the show notes. We've provided some resources, including a great uh, presentation from New York University. Um, we have a link to the IAEM Code of Ethics, uh, and uh, as well as this TI tool. All right, and that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast, Relative Rightness, Ethics in Emergency Management. A huge thank you to Dr. Catherine Duthie for volunteering her expertise and agreeing to be interviewed for this episode. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production. As always, this production is designed as a supplementary educational tool for the emergency management professional. And the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that myself or Josh are employed by or may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, please visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. And feel free to follow us on Facebook at Epic Podcast, all one word, or send us a tweet at username Epic Podcast. Until then, I'm Josh. And I'm Grayson. This has been Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Current, relevant, Canadian.